Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Well, hello everyone. Hello, Dr. Blevins. How are you today? Greetings. I'm doing well. It's a little hot here in San Rafael, though. How about in Tahoe? It's, it's warm, too. It's a beautiful day. Absolutely not a cloud in the sky and yeah. no wind and finally warm. Uh, excellent. Uh, yeah. So welcome to today's uh, live session, live talk session. And uh, I just wanted to do a few housekeeping uh, items. But first, uh, to tell everybody that we're going to be discussing the naming of diseases, the semantics of that naming, and uh, or the, w the way we describe these diseases and, and things in pituitary medicine that are very important, the way they're, they're described. Uh, and th these are things that can lead to confusion by the way in that indeed they're being described. So, but before we get into that discussion, I thought there was a couple of uh, housekeeping items I wanted to share with our audience. Uh, first, uh, it was a reminder that our program usually is around um, about an hour long, give or take, and uh, it usually we record it, it. We record every program, and it's usually available on demand one or two days after the live broadcast. Uh, and you can review the program by going to pituitaryworldnews.org, where you can find several links to that live talk on demand page. Um, and it's uh, it's it's in the front page, so you'll see it there. Uh, the second one that's important is that you can participate in these sessions by calling in, and we encourage you to do so. Uh, there are a few rules, though. Unfortunately, our technology is not quite there. So if you are listening on a mobile phone, uh, the call-in feature is not operational yet. The technical people are working on it, and we hope we'll have this capability soon uh, to make it easier for you to call in and a little more seamless than it is today. But on... But if you're on your laptop, or, or, I mean, yeah, on your laptop or on your desktop, um, you will be able to call in. You'll just see a, uh, a button on the bottom that says uh, uh, call in, and th then we'll go through the process. Uh, so anyway, rest assured that we are working to make this call-in feature, and we, we really uh, want it, as I think Dr. Blevins uh, mentioned several times, we want these programs to be uh, about people calling in and about your comments and your points of views that we want to share with everybody. So that's it for me, uh, Dr. Blevins. Uh, All right. Thank you for, uh, for the housekeeping for, issues there. Yeah. We always think uh, that we remind people about all these things and we don't. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for, yeah. So thank it's you. interesting. So when, when we first met, um, you introduced yourself as Jorge and, yes. uh, I know you're often referred to as JD. Your middle name is Daniel. And yes, names are very important. Uh, you know, my name is Lewis. And it's interesting. You've, you've always, we all have been called by the wrong name at some point in life, even by people who should know our name, right? And you kind of cringe a little bit when that happens, right? This person sh should have known my name, you know, they, and uh, we all want to be recognized by the name that we have. Um, yeah. I cringe the same way when I hear people use medical terms inappropriately. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the semantics of things is very curious to me when we think about how diseases are named and, 
and all of that. And, and the, the, uh, the confusion, I think, often relates because we have a number of terms in medicine that are Greek, another set are Latin, <clears throat> and then certainly English as well. Diseases are sometimes named from the organ that they uh, derived from, uh, but also after people who described diseases uh, in, the, uh, in the past. They described a syndrome or a collection of features that were associated with disease in an organ. And because of their descriptions, the disease was named after a particular individual. Hmm. Some are named because of physical features that are present. We'll talk about some specifics in a moment. While others nowadays are named after the mutation uh, that, that people have. So it's a big mess. And uh, it's, it's no surprise that there's often difficulty in physicians trying to convey to uh, lay people, namely most patients are lay people. Some of my patients are doctors and nurses and they can get it, you know, to try to convey what you actually have and what it should be called. And of course, the reason being is that communication is essential. You know, there can be so many errors in communication that in medicine lead to significant errors in decision making and maybe even prescriptions for treatment. So it's key that we call things correctly by the types of uh, diseases uh, or illnesses that that uh, the patients have. Yeah, yeah. Think, it's interesting coming from just a quick comment coming from the marketing world you know, with naming, which is so critical and for products, is they have to sound good too. And in medicine, a lot of these names really don't sound that good. Yeah, <laughs> just a exactly. Different, a different sort of point of view. I always thought, oh, acromegaly, what an awful name for a disease. You yeah. Know, we, should, we should find something where I know we've talked about, you know, diabetes insipidus and how much confusion that name costs, but it costs. But I know yeah. you're going you're to talk about that anyway. Yeah, we'll this, visit both of those. Yeah. Just to, just imagine, um, you know, we, we call flu, I've got the flu, whatever, you know, that's, that's because the symptoms of whatever virus you have causing that illness, maybe it's the influenza virus, but it all comes from the symptoms that were seen in influenza. And yeah. you hear people, you ask people, what were your symptoms of COVID? Oh, I felt like I had the flu. It's like <laughs> that very confusing, very confusing craziness, you know, so yeah. Instead of often saying, well, I have the, you know, fever, myalgias, headache, photopho, whatever, uh, they say, I, had the, I had felt like I had the flu. So it's, uh, yeah. that's, a, that's an example of a semantic thing in modern era that's sort of kind of silly, the way things are yeah. and the way we relate to one another. And but it communicates a lot of information, right? So, uh, and it's fairly precise, accurate information about what those symptoms would be like. But it's a totally different disease. Um, so we have to be careful. Well, like when that. you're listening to a patient, I'm assuming that the way they describe it, what they have is critical for the understanding of what your, the options, diagnostic yeah. options might be, no? Yeah. Well, let's look at Cushing's disease as an example. So Cushing's disease is uh, separate from Cushing's syndrome. Cushing's syndrome is people who look like they have Cushing's disease or the clinical syndrome that Harvey Cushing described around 1914 or 1912 or so. And uh, with, a, with a case report uh, in, in a book. And um, so anybody that looks like that said to have Cushing syndrome. First off, not everybody with this disorder looks that way. And some people have very mild forms of the disorder. Uh, and uh, some people have a pituitary tumor. Others have adrenal tumors. And Cushing's disease is a term that's used to describe people who have pituitary tumors. 
the modern day way of saying this would probably be ACTH dependent hypercortisolism due to a pituitary tumor. But we say Cushing's disease because it's shorter. And the semantics is that people know what you're talking about when you say Cushing's disease. If you say Cushing mm-hmm. syndrome, I don't know if you have adrenal tumor, ectopic ACTH producing tumor or a pituitary tumor, or whether you've taken medicines and look like you have Cushing's. So it's an example of the semantics. The Cushing's was named after Dr. Harvey Cushing's, but we really don't talk about that, the actual organ causing the problem of hypercortisolism, which is probably more accurate because people have to have learned that Cushing's disease is what we call it if it's pituitary tumor. Uh, Cushing's syndrome due to adrenal adenoma is often what's said if it's a pituitary or if it's an adrenal tumor, not a pituitary problem. So that's an example of semantics. And if you mentioned acromegaly, that translates to enlargement of the distal ends of the extremities, the hands and the feet. So, you know, technically, if we want to follow the Cushing's thing, we could call this uh, Curie's disease because Marie Curie gave the first really good description of of the clinical syndrome of acromegaly in the 1800s. And of course, there was the Irish giant. So we could call it Burns disease, name it after the patient who was affected if we wanted to. Um, proper proper terminology in this day, day and age would be, uh, you know, growth hormone hypersecretion due to a growth hormone secreting pituitary tumor. Uh, but everybody knows what acromegaly is. So this is another semantic example of how a disease is named, in this case, named after the physical features and not after a person or not after the actual organ affected. And we know that some people with acromegaly do have growth hormone releasing hormone secreting tumors of the pancreas or other neuroendocrine tumors. So you can sort of split things and be very specific, or you can say acromegaly, and most people know what that means. And of course, giantism for people who uh, are uh, diagnosed with this disorder uh, in uh, childhood before their epiphyses have closed, so they become Mm -hmm. gigantic or tall. But there are other reasons for giantism too. So that's not even the best term to, to use to describe acromegaly. The key is communication. So when, when you hear acromegaly, you know what that is, right? Yeah. And you can surmise that 99% of the time, maybe 99.8% of the time, the patient probably has pituitary tumor. Uh, so it's a, it's sort of a clinical syndrome. Many of our disorders are uh, diagnosed by clinical syndrome. You mentioned diabetes insipidus earlier. Uh, the term diabetes means passage of large amounts of urine. You know, people with diabetes insipidus who technically have vasopressin deficiency or vasopressin resistance pass large amounts of urine. Uh, insipid or insipidus is sort of a dilute, uh, uh, dilute water, uh, whereas diabetes mellitus, they pass large amounts of urine. That's why it's called diabetes, but mellitus means sweet, so the urine is sweet. Uh, in that setting. And uh, as a consequence, people who have diabetes insipidus, when they show up in the hospital or the doctor's office, are often confused as having uh, diabetes mellitus because some healthcare providers never see DI and, uh, or vasopressin uh, deficiency. So they, they think it's diabetes. When you say diabetes insipidus, they think it's just really diabetes mellitus. They just hear the first term. Yeah. Uh, it's a classic example when it comes to naming diseases and semantics that uh, there is confusion and there can be errors in prescription of either diagnostic testing or follow-up in that setting. And, you know, we probably do need to change the name of that uh, particular disorder to vasopressin uh, uh, deficiency or vasopressin resistance. 
and we talked with Pat Gildry about, about that uh, topic uh, on one of our first uh, radio shows, so people can refer back to that if they want to learn more about that particular Yeah, topic. that was our second um, second live session <coughs> with Pat Gildry. Very informative, actually. It was excellent. I mean, we're talking about how uh, important it is to have the diagnosis correct. I, I And what really prompted me to want to do our radio show on this topic today was I had... I was reading in one of the hypopituitary groups on Facebook where someone had asked a question, did anybody else have Addison's disease from their pituitary tumor? Yeah. And that's the wrong terminology to use for pituitary disease. Addison's disease is a very specific form of primary adrenal insufficiency. Primary meaning the adrenal glands are affected, named after Thomas Addison. Uh, who was a, a physician who described the clinical features of what we know as Addison's disease, which is actually an autoimmune destruction of the adrenal glands. And in that setting, your adrenal glands die off from your immune system, killing them off. You have oftentimes another, a number of associated features. Your ACTH levels rise, but your adrenal glands can't make cortisol in response to that. Additionally, you're missing a hormone called mineralocorticoid hormones or aldosterone, uh, which uh, can lead to salt loss and hypotension and severe dehydration and volume depletion. And that's what Addison's disease is. Related to that is primary adrenal insufficiency due to a number of other causes, such as infiltration from fungal infections, uh, removal with surgery for kidney cancer, or to take the adrenals out in Cushing's. Those patients have primary adrenal insufficiency and need to have the mineralocorticoids as well. Patients with pituitary disease don't have Addison's disease. They have adrenal insufficiency that affects only a part of the adrenal gland, and it's best referred to as secondary adrenal insufficiency, or the term that we like to use, central, meaning the central unit of the hypothalamus and the pituitary, because that's sort of the central part of this cascade of hormone secretion where the hypothalamus controls the pituitary, the pituitary controls the adrenals. Both of those aforementioned organs get feedback from adrenal cortisol production and uh, decide and regulate how much cortisol is supposed to be produced. So, and it's very important that people have that distinction in their minds and refer to it as secondary or central adrenal insufficiency. Because if you tell a doctor you have Addison's or go in the emergency room, they may do the wrong thing. They may give you mineral corticoid hormones, which you don't need because that part of your adrenal gland is working entirely normally. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's critical to be aware uh, uh, if you have pituitary insufficiency or hypopituitarism, you say hypopituitarism with secondary adrenal insufficiency, and a doctor would know that your mineralocorticoid functions are fine and that you don't need treatment for that. Um, there are other reasons that a distinction like this is important that we won't go into at the moment. Uh, but the same is true for hypothyroidism. If you say you have hypothyroidism, a lot of doctors think you have thyroid disease, and that is leading to a, uh, a, a potential problem in that setting where um, you have thyroid deficiency and you're taking thyroid hormone and your TSH can be measured to decide on the proper dose. But central hypothyroidism uh, or secondary hypothyroidism, you can't use the TSH. So it's very critical that if you have hypothyroidism due to pituitary disease, you tell your doctor, I have central or secondary hypothyroidism, I take thyroid hormone, my TSH is useless. You have to look at the T4 and the T3 levels. So another example of how being very specific about your actual hormonal abnormality or the disease state can help a doctor help you best and avoid errors in treatment. 
Does that uh, confusion or errors that happen relatively often or is it a... I probably have this happen 30 times a year in some of my patients where they come, they come to, I tell patients now, if they have hypothyroidism, don't let your doctor adjust your medicines without contacting me. And believe it or not, people don't remember that because people don't remember everything they're told in a doctor's visit. Oh, absolutely. And, and sometimes people come to me and they're, they're feeling miserable because their physician lowered the dose of thyroid hormone. The TSH is low. That's why they take thyroid hormone. That's why they have the problem. Um, they, uh, they're going to always have a low TSH. The doctor checks the TSH, it's low, so they lower the dose of thyroid hormone, thinking the patient's on too much. Six weeks, eight weeks later, they check the TSH again, it's still low, so they lower the dose even more. Ultimately, it's discontinued. Patients come to back to me, I've gained 15 pounds, I feel miserable, I have cold intolerance, I can't get enough rest, and yeah. it's because the thyroid medicine was discontinued because there was a misunderstanding on the physician's part uh, that they have central hypothyroidism and not primary hypothyroidism, which is a totally separate disease state. And this is, this is again, uh, we're looking at another organ system here. First, we talk about adrenal insufficiency, now thyroid. It's an example of why it's very important to be able to communicate effectively and know precisely what you have when you talk to your healthcare providers who, who may not have ever seen a pituitary patient. Pituitary disease is fairly uncommon. Yeah. And uh, most healthcare providers are not going to have encountered these situations. So in many cases, it's up to the patients to, uh, to be able to educate their physicians. And in fact, this week, I had one patient go to pituitaryworldnews.org, find the article on central hypothyroidism, print it out, and I said, send it to your doctor because <laughs> your doctor. But this patient said to me, I told her I'd get an appointment with you before she could change my medicine. <laughs> And she still wanted to change it anyway, and I said no. And that's a good patient. That's a patient who's informed and advocating for self, which we obviously... Yeah. You know, and that, that becomes a, just a wonderful resource. I get comments, and I hear comments all the time about uh, patients going to and printing something or, you know, audience and sending it to someone, either someone else or their physician, which is just wonderful. That's exactly what we want to happen. Yeah. The same thing applies to other disorders as well, like... For example, I had a patient the other day say that they were diagnosed with congestive heart failure. That means so many different things. You know, that could be congestive heart failure due to right-sided pump failure, or right-sided failure, pump failure, pulmonary hypertension, uh, uh, hypertensive heart disease with a stiff heart or a big flabby open heart that's not pumping. There's so many things, and it's important that even if you have heart failure, or pneumonia or whatever that you work with your physician to figure out exactly what the problem is so that you can relate what the problem is to another physician because it matters. You know? The type of heart failure matters, just like why, why do you have hypertension? You know, what type of hypertension do you have? That's important too. What type of diabetes? So the semantics doesn't apply just to pituitary disorders. Yeah, no, I'm sure. It's sort of like the, the issue that we've talked about before, about pituitary tumors not being brain tumors. I mean, you, you really want to be able to communicate. You don't want to tell your doctor, a new doctor, I have a brain tumor. When it's not a brain tumor, it's a pituitary tumor. A brain tumor means so many things to doctors, and the first thing that goes to their mind is exactly what type of brain tumor. And then it's like, oh, it was a pituitary tumor. That's totally different. You know, it's a different organ, different system, different consequences, etc. It's another example of being very specific. Yeah. And we see a lot of that description in, the, in you know, for, through social media, uh, people describing 
describing it as a brain tumor. And, uh, uh, so it's pretty ubiquitous. Yeah. I think it, it, you know, not to, not to explain it, but uh, it's an easy way to tell people where you're generally where your tumor is without having to get too technical, you know, to other lay people, if you're yeah. obviously, if you're describing it to a physician. So it's, uh, and then the other part is just basically not knowing, you know, yeah. Uh, what, it, what it is. Well, you brought up an issue to me in a conversation recently about the new classification for pituitary adenomas. And uh, uh, why don't you sort of bring us up to date on your understanding of that? And I'll comment about the this new classification. And so To me, it was uh, relatively confusing because I really didn't have an understanding of it. But the issue was uh, on the, I guess, the semantics of describing a pituitary uh, uh, adenoma and they, they, I think it's partly this is going on in Europe, but it's the, the intent to describe or to uh, join NETs, uh, neuroendocrine tumors, and pituitary tumors. I think that's what you're referring to. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So I'm not sure. I was asked, uh, what, what, yeah, as a patient, what do I think? And I said, honestly, I, you know, I don't have a, an opinion other than. You know, would it if you if you're referring to all of this as one, does it help or does it confuse more? Uh, and and is it um, th does that lead to more research? Does that lead to a bigger group? You know, working towards the same ends of of improving a patient's quality of life, etc. But um, I, you know, it seems to me like it's. I don't know, unnecessary maybe? I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I first became aware of this uh, semantic classification and reclassification of pituitary tumors a year or two ago. And uh, the so to back up a little bit before we talk about that, there are several different types of tumors that can occur in the pituitary gland, and usually the pathologist will tell us what type. It's a pituitary adenoma or a chorostoma of the posterior pituitary or craniofringioma or a metastatic tumor any one variety of a number of different tumor types that can occur there. Pituitary adenomas themselves are neuroendocrine tumors. They're derived from neuroendocrine tissue. Uh, they have secretory granules and look like neuroendocrine cells and stain for some of the same markers, etc. cetera. Oh, and in this day and age, pathologists can stain, uh, do immunostains for hormones and transcription factors and tell us exactly what kind of pituitary tumor you have. And I think that's important, especially in patients with the so-called non-functioning tumors who don't have acromegaly or Cushing's or TSH excess or prolactinomas. It's important to know what the cell type is because we, we can start to understand how these different cell type tumors behave differently and be more aggressive in follow-up or with radiotherapy if there's residual tumor, et cetera. So that's all important. And neuroendocrine tissues occur throughout the body. They're in every organ almost. They're in the skin. The melanocytes that, that produce melanin in the skin are neuroendocrine cells. Uh, there are neuroendocrine cells in the gastrointestinal tract that make hormones that control digestion and the way a GI tract works and release of gall, you know, uh, bile from the gallbladder. That's controlled by a neuroendocrine system, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is a diffuse neuroendocrine system in the lungs, the GI system, ovaries, the testes, etc. Just every tissue uh, in our body has neuroendocrine cells. And tumors can develop in any one of those different areas. Um, and pituitary tumors are neuroendocrine tumors. So the, the latest push is to try to 
combine the pituitary tumors with the other neuroendocrine tumors because they're neuroendocrine. So they want to call them PIT-NET tumors now, PIT meaning pituitary net neuroendocrine tumors instead of calling it a pituitary adenoma. I don't see the point in that, uh, for one, because pituitary adenoma implies a neuroendocrine tumor. Craniopharyngioma implies a different type of tumor, for example. We don't need to call mm. it a pit net just to confuse the matter and confuse the terminology. It doesn't add anything different. Uh, most neuroendocrine tumors behave much differently than pituitary tumors anyways. Neuroendocrine tumors in the lung and the GI tract, et cetera, the pancreas, they behave much differently and can be more aggressive and a higher proportion of them are malignancies. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would rather be a splitter and keep pituitary adenoma separate and not call it pituitary neuroendocrine tumors. Yeah. Um, but uh, it remains to be seen what's going to happen. Uh, our uh, pathologists at UCSF are starting to put in the reports, even though I know they disagree with the new name in nomenclature, they're starting to put in the reports, the pit net tumor. Uh, to me, it's like, oh, well, whatever, you know, that's yeah. not going to change my clinical practice to, or approach to the patient. It's going to be the same regardless of what they call it. Reminds me a bit of uh, when I was in my residency, uh, there were certain uh, diseases uh, associated with certain types of bacteria. And today, these bacterial names don't exist. They, they've been renamed. Yeah. The bacteria are called different things now. And we used to joke about it when, when I was in my training that uh, what do old infectious disease and microbiologists do is they change the name of all the bacteria because then they're the only ones that understand what's going on. It's kind of a... Uh, Job security. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> but uh, you saw it all the time. Every year, certain bacteria were changed from this name to that name. And then you couldn't, you know, if you weren't keeping up in the field, you didn't really know what the new names were for these bugs. And they were talking about the same things, and but a different name now. Yeah. Uh, the, the disease and the treatment's the same. Why do they have to change the name of the organism? And all that's been done because of the molecular understanding and the biochemical understanding of some of these organisms. So they wanted to sort of split them into different yeah. classifications. So, you know, there's, there's another interesting uh, issue, which is, when you rename, just like when you rebrand a product or a company or anything, it, it, there has to be a, an advantage for it, a, a, a value proposition or something that is yeah. that is improving because you change the name. And there's, there's a reason. It's, well, you know, if you do this way, there may be more progress or joint, yeah. you know, collaborate, whatever, whatever it happens to be. So many people change names just to change names yeah. just because things are not going well, yeah. you know, at least in the business world. Yeah. And, uh, and the so, semantics of this calling them pit nets, I'm not sure my patients are going to understand that. That's just going to create a lot of confusion. They're going to go to the internet and read about neuroendocrine tumors and say, gee, I'm going to die. These things are aggressive. Yeah. But that's the most pituitary tumors are not aggressive. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I've only seen probably 30 cases of pituitary carcinoma in the last 15 years. In the prior 15 years of my career, I saw maybe one. So, you know, UCSF being a referral center, we have, you know, the largest pituitary volume in the country as far as have people going to surgery. And, and, uh, we, so we're going to see more carcinomas than, than I had seen before at other institutions. Um, but you'll see far more, a greater proportion of people with neuroendocrine tumors to have carcinomas. It's said that if you have a neuroendocrine tumor of the lung, it's a 40% chance of malignancy. A pituitary tumor that's a neuroendocrine tumor, you're looking at a far less than 1% chance it's a malignancy. So mm-hmm. I don't think changing the name heightens an awareness or changes an approach to the 
to the disease process, and I just don't see it. On the other hand, uh, diabetes insipidus, vasopressin deficiency or resistance, it makes sense to change that name because that's going to help patients get better care and more appropriate targeted therapy for what's really going on. They're going to get their sodium checked in their urine output instead of their blood blood sugars when they go to the hospital, for example, yeah. uh, and not get insulin by mistake. So I think that, uh, you know, there are reasons to change names, but I, I don't see the, the validity of changing the name PitNet, nor did our pathologists. And, and I know that they drafted a letter to the individual who was behind this push to change the the, the pit net thing, but uh, obviously it was unsuccessful because it's starting to creep into our pathology reports at the moment. Hmm. It gets back to our original uh, notion of the naming of diseases and semantics and how things do change. And regardless of what you call it, it's still very important to be able to convey what you have to another individual, especially a healthcare provider. So if you went to your primary care physician and said, yeah, I went to UCSF and saw Dr. Blevins and had surgery with with one of his surgeons, either Dr. Augie or Dr. Kunwar or Dr. Goldschmidt or Dr. Theodosophilus, and they told me I had a pit net. The primary care doctor or the internist, even if they're sharp, they're going to know what the heck that is. Yeah. But if you said, uh, they said I had a non-functioning pituitary tumor, uh, or they said I had a prolactinoma, that their doctor's going to understand that most of the time. Not all the time, because yeah. you know, physicians don't see these patients. But they're going to know better about where to go look online or in their textbook to figure out, okay, so Mary said she had a prolactinoma. Let me go read about that. Yeah. Uh, but tell your doctor you had a pit net. It's going to be a little bit of a different uh, journey for them. They may not even look it up because it sounds so yeah. nebulous. So, How did that start? The whole... Uh, there's a... It probably started from a neuropathologist's group who wanted to more... They like pathologists like to label and classify things, and some of it is so that they can do research. Uh, but uh, I, I don't really fully understand the genesis of it, um, other than this recognition that pituitary tumors are neuroendocrine tissues and tumors, and we should sort of lump them in with other neuroendocrine tumors instead of splitting them out. Um, yeah, but I I feel that this I mean you can't. You can't just, I mean, when, when a patient goes to a doctor and says, I had cancer, that didn't tell me anything because <laughs> yeah. a lot of cancers are curable. Uh, a cancer in a lung is different than cancer in a testis than different than a skin cancer. Uh, and the cell types in those different organs are different. So to me, to, to say you have a pit in that tumor is, um, is like saying you had a pituitary adenoma without talking about exactly what you had. So... Uh, I think if you have cancer, you need to be able to say it was prostate or it started in the breast or started in the lung and it spread to this tissue or, or whatever. Um, so it's, it's all, again, about being specific and communicating to other people the precision about what's diagnosed. Yeah, which is critical. Yeah. Um. So you were talking about an article that you're going to write soon. Yeah, so yeah. we've been working on this uh, a really interesting presentation a few months ago back, three or four months ago, that the, one of the uh, World Alliance of Pituitary Organizations, WAPO um, webinar, is about plain language summaries. This is a company in the UK that's doing them, but I think everybody now is doing these plain language summaries. So we've been doing a little research on on what's going on with that, and they appear to be taking hold. 
basically, you know, a plain language summary is, can you explain your science to a non-scientist type of thing? Mm -hmm. uh, simplify it in a way and write it in a way so people can understand more of what's going on. I, I think, um, obviously, accuracy is critical, but if that can be done uh, with plain language, it's always so much better because you broaden the 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 you know the reach of that information. And for our diseases, you know, pituitary diseases, information is so critical. Uh, so I think if people can understand it, uh, so uh, so it, ba it basically makes studies and research easier to read, and it appears that that is taken hold. Uh, we just received um, as a press release a plain language summary for Isteresa, which is the drug for um, Cushing's, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that was very interesting. Um, uh, and and I think it's it's I think it's a great thing. Because, like you know, we write an article and then we'll have links to sometimes very technical information, which many people want to read, and we still will do that. Mm -hmm. But uh, but there's also the opportunity to have these uh, links to plain language summaries to mm -hmm. make uh, to make it easier for people to understand and to decide whether they want to learn more or not, and then go to a technical, uh, uh, you know, uh, or a very uh, specific scientific research paper that has, as you know, you know, tremendous amount of jargon and concepts that are really difficult if you're not a scientist to, to understand, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, st statistics and what they all mean. And, and you know, in terms of understanding how a, you know, a standard deviation ap applies to, you know, to the real world, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, those things are critical. So we're, ha I'm excited about learning more about them and writing, this article I was working on it uh, this week, so I hope it hope to have it published uh, next week. Which, well, we look, what are your thoughts on on these plain language things? Well, I look forward to seeing that. You know, I, yeah. I think it's a nice st a step in the right direction and a nice thing to do, and it, yeah. it sort of reminds me of the way that we try to educate patients. At least yes. I do, and hopefully other people do as well. There's, you know, pe many people. Like I had a patient today who said, "I never knew I had a pituitary problem until I saw you. I didn't know what the pituitary was." And, you know, I thought, I thought, well, you know, we've done a, a lot to educate this gentleman about what the pituitary is, what it does, why you have to take hormones, how you ended up with deficiencies, etc. And it was a process of, of laying the basics, setting up a vocabulary that allowed him to understand and look things up and to learn more and to communicate with us. And then explaining some physiology and the importance of certain medications and why he's on medicines. And then it comes down to say for the central hypothyroidism of teaching patients about the caveats of the disease as they learn enough to be able to go forward and be able to tell their doctor, hey, you can't check my TSH and adjust my dose of thyroid medicine. It's all essential. And, you know, we recognize that uh, people come from all backgrounds, all levels of understanding, all levels of education, all degrees of intellect. So some people get it differently than others, but we really still should start at a plain language basic background for people who don't have medical experience and a medical vocabulary. And I think it's a, I think it's it's important for more physicians to learn about this as well, so that mm -hmm. they can lead patients along the journey uh, with regards to their healthcare. The other thing that came to mind when you were talking was I saw a patient this week, lovely woman who scheduled an appointment with me because she heard something on one of our radio shows and it alarmed her. 
she was ready for more education about her disease, namely adrenal insufficiency and central adrenal insufficiency, and wondered whether some of the things that I had said about stress dosing and taking your medicines, if you can't uh, keep it down, et cetera, applied to her. Very good questions. And uh, she was ready to learn. So we spent a lot of time talking. The first thing I started out with was if we give me 100 people who have central adrenal insufficiency, I have 100 different patients. It's not all the same. Not everybody gets treated the same. Some have mild, moderate, or severe. Some have it due to different causes. And some require different doses or different drugs than, than others and also different approaches to stress those steroids. But it was nice to be able to go through that process of vocabulary and uh, language and helping to her to understand her illness more. We spent 20 minutes because she wanted to have a separate visit just to review this. And it was yeah. a nice education summary. And, and I and my team, we were doing a Zoom, Zoom call with her, felt really good about the visit uh, because it was such a a nice interaction. And, you know, we really felt like we made a difference and helped that patient in understanding. And I think that, uh, um, you know, I've often said that my best students are my patients. Those are the ones I enjoy teaching the most. Forget the residents, not really, but, you know, I like helping them because they're going to help other people and teach the same principles maybe. So your, your impact goes far. But to me, I love teaching my patients about their illnesses mm -hmm. and things like that. And I think these plain language summaries are great great idea and a great start just to get that process started. Yes. When I think about my case, you know, where you've just all of a sudden told that you have this and I had heard of the pituitary gland, but I didn't have any, but the, the thing with these, uh, the, as you get interested in the in learning more about your disease and about everything else that has to do with it is, um, the science is fascinating. I mean, the actual science of, hormones and how that happened and i mean it's just a fascinating subject and the more you can uh, learn and uh, understand it when you read it uh, not because you know you're not capable of understanding it's because most of the the data and the information comes in very very scientific language and unless you're a scientist you have to actually stop. It's like, you know, when you're read, trying to read on another language, every two or three words, you go to the dictionary to see what, what, what does that mean? Um, uh, it happens to me in Italian. I'm maybe 60%, 70% uh, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, okay, you know, with Italian. Mm -hmm. But I, when, if I'm reading it, I'm reading the paper, I, 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 I stop every, you know, I don't know, 50, 60 words to see what that means. And I have to go uh, to the dictionary. Now you can do, now you can do Google translate, which is a lot easier, but, but yeah. still, you know, it's an interesting, uh, interesting uh, uh, thing to do. So. so do you mean to say that a fascinating has to look up Italian words in the dictionary? <laughs> yes. <laughs> interesting. Yes, so. Uh, so listen, we have a caller. Jason's calling in from Boise. So I don't know how to work this. This this is new to us too, okay. Jason and everybody else out there listening. I'm going to click on the green check mark and see okay. if this works. If not, we've got to figure this out. So Okay. Well, hopefully we, we don't lose you, Jason. And if we do, oh, there he is. Yes. Hello, Hi. Jason. Hi. Greetings. It Welcome. Worked. Welcome to Pituitary World News Live Talk. Thank you. Um my situation began in 2000. I was just presenting to the doctor uh, with flu-like symptoms, and it went on for a month. 
and he kept saying you have the flu and I, I was just violently vomiting constantly and then I got admitted to the hospital uh, one evening and and just for fluids on call decided to do an MRI and that's when I found the mass on the pituitary gland and then a month later I ended up having the surgery which um, turned out to be an abscess which was quite unusual you know doctors were really kind of you know I wouldn't say stunned but they were just you know surprised that it was an abscess but I've been dealing with this for quite some time and it I mean this condition you know um, I was watching I think um, last night um, a discussion and it was a panel of the physicians and stuff and and um, they're talking about just the 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 mental health aspect of this disease and mm-hmm. I just really wished that somehow there could be more emphasis on just the the depression and and whatnot that can come along with this disease. So it's pretty it's pretty incredible how these hormone deficiencies and even the the uh, I, I, one patient said the trauma of having this diagnosis in surgery can affect uh, the uh, the mind body connection, <clears throat> and it's not unusual. We work a lot with Linda Rio. We need to have her as a guest at some point uh, to to focus and highlight these issues in patients with pituitary tumors because we see it all the time. I, I was having a conversation with a patient today uh, who was uh, tearful actually talking about these same issues. She had Cushing's and we talked about the, what we know about Cushing's patients and the permanent brain injury they have as a result of the hypercortisolism. Uh, and that's that even sometimes happens in people taking cortisol or one form of steroid or another uh, after treatment for pituitary tumors. Uh, so that so it is it is something I think a lot of endocrinologists don't even pay attention to. They're more interested in the hormone levels and and making sure that all the boxes are ticked, et cetera. And that's a good start because that often fixes a lot of problems. But if they're not dose optimizing, they're not getting the rest of the patient taken care of. Um, your case is very interesting. You probably had what we call an infected Rathke's cleft cyst. That's the most common form of an abscess in the pituitary gland. I have seen one patient that had a sinus infection that spread into the pituitary and then another that had a hemorrhagic pituitary tumor that got infected. So it's probably one of those three things. The infected Rathke's cyst usually destroy the gland. Uh, hypopituitarism is very common in that setting. Uh, and uh, if your drugs aren't optimized, you're not going to have uh, the, the the great sense of well-being that you want to experience over time. Uh, it's life is definitely it's really challenging. I'm you know constantly my, my fatigue is off the charts. Um, I I feel um, and my endocrinologist. I've also seen Dr. Friedman um, in L.A. Um, but uh, he, he thinks that um, I may have some dysregulation of the hypothalamus as mm-hmm. well. Do you know of any type of testing that can be done on the hypothalamus to 
determine if there is any type of dysregulation that I mean that's causing cognitive issues because yeah. certainly I have I mean I've taken three different neurocognitive tests and I've done very poorly in all of them. Mm-hmm. Um and my sleep is just horrific. I cannot sleep hardly at all. Mm. It's just broken you, up. You might actually have some hypothalamic dysfunction. There's no real good testing for that. It's more of an appearance of the hypothalamus on the scans. And mm-hmm. then also the pattern of history and symptoms and signs. People uh, with hypothalamic dysfunction often have hypopituitarism. Their prolactin may be high. They may have diabetes insipidus. They have poor sleep. They tend to gain weight. Uh, they tend to have an increased appetite, a slow metabolism. Uh, even dieting doesn't result in any improvement whatsoever. Uh, and uh, those are some of the more common symptoms and signs that people have when they have hypothalamic dysfunction. Just like any disease, people have mild, moderate, and severe forms. And uh, if you've had any of those symptoms and signs, it may be hypothalamic. And unfortunately, it's the most difficult to treat Yeah. Uh, in that setting. And the most common reason to have hypothalamic dysfunction is either the surgeon got into the hypothalamus or your pituitary lesion and the mass grew into the hypothalamus or compressed it and caused dysfunction. And when they take the tumor away, if there's any scarring or stickiness between the two, that can tear the hypothalamus and lead to trouble. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate circumstances, and that can lead to uh, some of the memory problems and cognitive dysfunction as well, because the back part of the hypothalamus is involved in all of that. Uh, So it sounds like you may have some dysfunction there. That's where I, that's where I'm really you know kind of um, trying to explore right now with uh, my endocrinologist to see if he can do further you know he's not a pituitary endocrinologist but he has a good working knowledge of it um, I just feel that you know I am missing a part of the puzzle here because uh, mm-hmm. in 2015 I just crashed I worked in a very high, super stressful job, certainly not conducive to this disease, you know, with not producing the cortisol. Um, and, um, you know, it just, with the fatigue, with not being able to sleep properly, um, and having diabetes, uh, type two diabetes and, now some cardiac issues, uh, fatty liver. I mean, I'm just getting hit with all these mm-hmm. weird symptoms, a lot of fat in my blood. Um, and it's just, it's just overwhelming. One of the things that uh, came to mind when you said about the missing piece of the puzzle, you, for years we treated people with panhypopituitarism with hormones and a lot of patients would say something's missing. It turned out in most of those patients, it was either a dose need to be optimized or they needed to start on growth hormone. So if you're not on growth hormone, that might fix a lot of what's ailing you. Yeah, I'm on growth hormones and um, I'm on And they need to just make it. sure your dose is optimized. Same thing with thyroid and testosterone and steroid. What steroid do you take? Cortef. Okay. So usually when people take Cortef and take growth hormone as well, the Cortef gets metabolized quickly. Mm-hmm. and your levels are too low. So you might want to try a longer-acting steroid like dexamethasone, 0.25, 0.375 milligram at bedtime. So talk to your doctor about that. Okay. It's amazing how many people making that change brings their 
sense of well-being. Uh, we can't we can't recommend that you do that. It's just sort of a suggestion that you should talk to your physician about that particular issue because it might improve your sense of well-being. Um, just to get on the right steroid because uh, steroids are in the, this particular cortisone. The metabolism is increased by taking growth hormone. It induces the enzymes to clear those hormones quicker. Uh, yeah, we uh, just we just recently upped my growth hormone to 0.3, I believe. I, I think that's the dose um, of the nortotropin, and and it's just I I don't feel really any different, you know. And I was um, at 0.25, I believe, uh, for the longest time, and and I just. My memory is just, it's just getting worse. And they all, the doctors, um, my, my psychiatrist, um, she's frustrated because she feels that the endocrine meds are competing with the psych meds in terms of the neurotransmitter and stuff in the brain. And it's just things aren't working for her to get me feeling, you know, better health-wise and and um and this the my sleep pulmonologist you know she thinks it's the hypothalamus that's causing the issue she just done everything it could be i would i would get a visit with your endocrinologist just to talk about optimizing hormones your igf1 needs to be in the you know, right between the upper quarter, upper three quarters of the normal range, your thyroid hormones should be in the upper half of the normal range, T4 and T3. And, um, and um, your steroid probably needs to be longer acting. And, you know, my goal is uh, with IC, my patients is to optimize all those hormone levels to, to do the best that I can, then work with mental health professionals to see if they simply need treatment for depression, because depression is very common in society. Uh, but some of the symptoms that you described sounds like you may have hypothalamic injury, and those are the more difficult things to manage. Um, Definitely, that can, can be. Um, there, yeah, I was I was going to mention that if I don't know if you, Jason, if you've uh, seen all of the uh, articles that we published on the mental and emotional health support, uh, but. Um, Go to the website pituitarywellness.org and under mental and emotional health, there's a bunch of stuff in there. And Linda has uh, published uh, quite a few resources mm-hmm. that you may you may find helpful. Uh, yeah, to read more. And if if you research, yeah, yeah. And if you uh, you send us some comments, and we'll try to find some things for you if you you know if you if you can find them. So I'll help you find them. Okay, appreciate it. We appreciate you calling in and sharing your story and uh, wish you success as you move forward. But see your doctor, try to get those things optimized. We have another call about hypothalamic stuff by Jonathan, so let's let him in as well. Great. Get a party going here. That's awesome. (laughs) Hello, Jonathan. Oh, hi, Jonathan. Good to see you. Hi. Nice to see you again, JP. Thank you, Dr. Barnum. Sure. yeah, it, it just over the past couple of weeks, three different doctors, all independent of each other, uh, mentioned that I might have uh, some hypothalamic damage. Uh, the first was uh, so so actually just just by way of background, I have uh, acromegaly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, knowing what I know now, I, I should have seen you, Doctor Blevins. Sorry. 
no. uh, but on the uh, never on too the late east, <laughs> on the east coast no a little, a little difficult um uh but i uh, uh so i've had i've had two surgeries uh and now about uh, four and a half years later igf1 is elevated again um I have, uh, I'm just going to go in, in sort of chronological order of the different physicians uh, that mentioned it to me. Uh, the first one is my uh, sleep specialist. I have uh, severe obstructive sleep apnea. I use my CPAP religiously, uh, but nevertheless, I, uh, I have trouble falling asleep, trouble, trouble staying asleep, and I wake up uh, not refreshed. I wake up uh, still exhausted every morning. I'm sleeping around 11 to 12 hours every day on average. Um, and so she, she threw out, you know, you might have some uh, damage to the hypothalamus, uh, which is what regulates sleep. So that mm -hmm. was, that was uh, episode one. Episode two was um, I, uh, I, I put on significant weight since my, uh, really, both each, each surgery, my weight has increased significantly. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I just met with a uh, weight loss endocrinologist. And she suggests I may have something called hypothalamic obesity, okay. um, which the way she summarized it to me, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you know, no matter what I eat, I don't, I never get that point where I feel that I'm satisfied. So my, my mind is like playing tricks on me, so to speak. Mm. Um, and then over the past couple months, six months or so, we're, we're still investing and trying to figure out what's going on. I have, um, I have a regular heartbeat. Uh, I think it was 3% PVCs. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I have some uh, pressure and pain uh, in my chest. I've had uh, a, a number of things, but, but I was just told by by uh, the uh, uh, acupuncturist actually that uh, um, that the hypothalamus uh, damaged hypothalamus could result in an irregular heartbeat. So I, I was very um, interested in, in, in what uh, Jason's question was, and I just wanted to to see if there's you know what next step, uh, you know, is there that I can do? Is there, is there any treatment at all? Um, any well, ideas? Or both both of you out? certainly sound like you may have some hypothalamic dysfunction. The, the one thing that's interesting about the heart rate, uh, and uh, people don't realize this, the hypothalamus is sort of the central receiving and sending part of the brain for a lot of the autonomic nervous system. There's two forms of the nervous system. Well, there's the central nervous system, then the peripheral nervous system, which is all the nerves and receptors and things. And then the uh, autonomic nervous system controls blood pressure, heart rate, uh, blood vessel constriction, and, you know, GI functions and things like that. The autonomic has a sympathetic and a parasympathetic division. And uh, because of the fact that the hypothalamus is the clearinghouse for information coming in and going out, you can have all sorts of different autonomic things. It's rare to see them. It, to me, they're more rare. And it may be because people don't survive those if it's really severe. But you can even get diabetes uh, due to impaired autonomic function, uh, controlling the insulin secreting parts of the pancreas. Uh, irregular heart rate, low heart rate, lo low blood pressure, blood pressure variability, et cetera. Do you know if the, your tumor grew up into the brain and pressed on the hypothalamus, or did they do your surgery through your skull or through your nose? Or? Uh, transphenoidal. Transphenoidal. Yeah. You know, I, I've seen a number of people who get transphenoidal surgery who end up with hypothalamic dysfunction. Uh, it's rare, but it can happen. Uh, and the, the, the weight that you mentioned is often common in acromegaly, too, because growth hormone 
and IGF-1 both burn fat like crazy. And almost all my patients, when they get treated for their acromegaly and have their levels restored to normal gain weight, uh, and it may be that that's really the, the reason for the weight gain. The other things, though, they kind of fit with partial. The problem is there's nothing to do. You know, if your hypothalamus is damaged, there's nothing to do to replace it. If people end up with low blood pressure, we have medicines for that. If they have high blood pressure, we have medicines for that. Um, there, there was a good drug for the hypothalamic obesity that was under study, but uh, the company ran out of money and had to stop it. I think they're continuing the studies in Europe. We may have a good drug for that in the future. Uh, the thermoregulatory disorders will usually either end up with high body temperatures, or low body temperatures, or uh, temperature variability. That's something we manage depending on their climate. Uh, so. Oh, yeah, I'm hot all the time. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have a good management for most of these hypothalamic problems. It's, I, I tell people it's often important to be aware of them and uh, know that you have them, and certain things can be treated with medicines like the low blood pressure, for example. Low heart rate can be treated sometimes to give a blocker for that. Um, but uh, it's it's very unusual to be able to treat uh, some of the things that you have. The sleep is the biggest problem. Some patients don't sleep much at all. Other people sleep 20 hours a day uh, when they have hypothalamic dysfunction, and there's nothing that anybody's been able to do to figure out how best to treat that. Dr. Uh, Blood, I, have had I was going to ask, um, would oxytocin help at all with, with the eating issue order as far as not... Eating Let's, so oxytocin is probably not going to help with the eating disorder, but I think we'll, we'll talk about that. So let me talk about the sleep thing. Not sleeping melatonin seems to help uh, for people with hypothalamic dysfunction. So over-the-counter liquid melatonin seems to be something that will help with that. Now, the other thing I'll say is that people with hypopituitarism and hypothalamic dysfunction, they are often missing oxytocin as well. Uh, and there's been a lot of research going on in the literature. And I think Stanford University is doing a study now of using oxytocin in people. I have treated a number of people with oxytocin and about half of them have reported marked improvements in sort of their social functioning and ability to go along with their kids or their spouse or their parents or whatever. Uh, so that uh, I think there is a role in people who are hypopituitary that uh, oxytocin may actually improve. Uh, their sense of well-being in their personal lives, which can lead to lots of other improvements in sense of well-being as well. So it's worth talking to your doctor about that if you're hypopituitary. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm currently on oxytocin and I'm still, the jury's still out on it, if it's really helping me or not. Yeah, go up on the dose, that's the one thing. So, Jonathan, you were going to say oh, something yeah, else? Yeah, I was going to say, pardon my, uh, my ignorance. Um, could you just explain a little bit about uh, what what oxytocin is, how it could help, and so, which 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 of my fifteen positions I should be right? So oxytocin is a hormone made by the hypothalamus and stored in the posterior pituitary. Uh, it's the hormone you may have heard of people who are going into labor. They're given them pitocin. It's the same thing. It causes uterine contraction, but it's a it's a neurotransmitter, if you will, and it probably plays a role in social bonding, so that. You know, when people say hug therapy, that's a real thing. Uh, having a hug or kissing or whatever, or having a positive social interaction increases oxytocin levels. And that creates a sense of a good feeling about social interactions and euphoria of, of such and makes you desire to be close to people and interact well with people and to have positive social interactions. 
So there's this thought that if you have hypopituitarism and or diabetes insipidus, that you may be oxytocin deficient, and it might explain some of the lack of social connection with you have with people, which can lead to other problems in life, depression, disagreements, sadness, whatever. And uh, th think of it as the bonding hormone, that it might improve that aspect of your life that helps you bond with other people. Uh, it's still under study. There have been some studies that have conflicting reports. Uh, they've tried it in kids with panhypopituitarism and seen aggressive behavior. But uh, those that, that subgroup of people they tried it in are prone to have aggressive behavior anyway. So uh, they, there needs to be further study to see. But there are a lot of people who are believers in it. And a lot of people you'll see on some of the different Facebook groups and people who've interacted with us who talk about how oxytocin change the lives of their children or themselves very dramatically in a positive way. And who prescribes this? Usually your endocrinologist might do it. Uh, the prescriptions usually go through a compounding pharmacy. It's not like Walgreens or uh -huh. CVS or whatever, but uh, you might be able to partner with your endocrinologist to do that. Uh, uh, and if not, maybe your primary physician could do that for you. Got it. Thank you both. Yeah. All of you. Thank you very, very much. Really learning a lot. Really appreciate it. Thank yeah, you for call, thank you for calling and participating, and uh, send us anytime your comments, and we'll be happy to uh, look at any of the subjects that you 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 have questions on to have more information. So um, unfortunately, we're getting to the reaching the end of our program. Uh, so I don't know, Doctor Blevins, if you want to close it uh, to say something. But again, thank you for our callers. That's great. Appreciate yeah. It. So thank you both for calling in. But I do want to draw attention to the. Jonathan sign that says stress dose question mark there. So tell us about that as <laughs> oh. we talk about stress dosing steroids and I've never seen someone with that on their wall. So, Oh, so uh, yeah, no, that's actually my, uh, my closet, uh, where I keep oh. my medication. <laughs> oh, I have, okay. uh, no, I, I have, I have secondary adrenal insufficiency and, um, and I, I, I'm on about 25, 28 different medications. And so I'm very regimented on, you know, I know what time of day to take what and so forth. But there's no like process or mechanism for me to say to myself, do I need to, you know, up my hydrocortisone? Okay. So that's my memory jogger to myself. Your reminder. Remember. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So. <laughs> yeah. I I can distribute that really simple side. <laughs> well, I brought it up because other patients who see this or listen to us may learn from that and benefit from that and to sort of put a poster there. So, all right. Well, thank you. Thank you both gentlemen for calling in. You're actually our first two guests on this radio program. So we're, we are, owe you a debt of gratitude there. And uh, uh, why don't we just uh, close the program and until next week, uh, uh, thanks everybody for listening. All right, take care. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to live talk an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.